Thank you, Camden, for sharing with us. This morning, as we open God's Word, I want to invite you to open to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1. It's a small pastoral epistle in the New Testament. It's one of three. And it's located just after 2 Timothy. If you're looking for it, 1 Timothy, then 2 Timothy. Just... (laughs) Just before Hebrews, I'll let you find it. It's on page 998 in the chairback Bibles, if you're using one of those. But before we read the text, will you join me in prayer? Father, as we approach your word this morning, grip us with the hope And the joy and the seriousness and the reality of this gracious salvation that you have called us to. Oh God, I pray that you would move our hearts, that you would stir within us longing and desire and action that matches our faith. I pray, God, that you would you would work in each of our lives to to cut away those areas that are that are not godly, that are not promoting your kingdom. And I pray, God, that you would strengthen and undergird our faith this morning. Father, I also pray that you would free us to live in, in the in the joy of eternal hope and that security. And Lord, all this by the the promise of your word. All this, God, by the truth that you have given us through the revelation of Christ, our Savior. And so, Lord, now we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word and open our minds to comprehend the truth of your word and And God, cause our hearts to love your word so that we might live and walk obediently after you. And I pray, Lord, that you would. You would see that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart are pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In Titus chapter one, we see the intro or the beginning of Paul's epistle letter to Titus. Titus was one of Paul's converts to the faith. He had led Titus as a young man to faith in Christ. And as I said a moment ago, that Titus is one of the three pastoral epistles in the New Testament, which means it's written to Paul's young disciple to offer encouragement to to Titus and to Timothy, offering them encouragement as they shepherd and lead Local congregations. And so foundationally, the pastoral epistles are letters of encouragement to pastors. But they are also, by way of implication, letters for the church, for congregations. They're they're more than just letters of encouragement to pastors. They offer us really a big picture view of, of what a healthy church should look like. And so there's a great deal of practical teaching and challenge for us as a congregation in the pages of Titus. One of the chief aims of Titus 
is to set forth a practice of godliness that's really informed by faith. And so godliness, as Paul understands it, is a practical outworking of the transformation that the gospel produces in each of our lives. When we come into contact with Christ by faith, then there is a work of transformation that begins. And what happens in the life of the child of God who is pursuing Christ is godliness. There's fruit that is birthed in the life of every disciple of Christ. And so godliness, what Paul says here is godliness is faith coupled with a a growing knowledge of God. And so as Dr. David said a moment ago, the theme of the, the text this morning is grace compels godliness. The grace of God that we have been singing about this morning compels us to live godly lives, not out of obligation, but out of, out of gratitude, out of hearts that desire to worship God, to praise Him, to live for Him, to bring Him glory, and to point others to see Christ and to turn their eyes to Christ. And so I want to begin first by reading in verses 1 through 4. So Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 is our text this morning. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. At the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul packs into these four verses a very condensed but large amount of doctrine and theology. As we read through that, there's there's so much that Paul is saying. And so I want to quickly walk through verse 1 but probably spend most of our time in verse 1 unpacking what the Apostle Paul is saying to Titus and by extension saying to you and I this morning. And then we'll finish up with verses 2 through 4. Outside of Titus, the biblical record is largely silent about the island of Crete. But the island of Crete was located in the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, we don't, even see, uh, we don't even see recorded or read recorded in Scripture where the Apostle Paul went on a missionary journey and stopped in Crete to plant churches. We only have Paul's letter to Titus telling us that he was leaving Titus behind in Crete, so he had been there, to establish the churches that he had left there. And so it seems that Paul had recently completed a journey through Crete, where he most likely began churches on the island. And so Paul, leaving Titus in Crete, leaves him there to ensure that, that the church leadership is properly established. So he desires to see healthy churches. And the reason, get this, the reason Paul wants to see healthy churches is because he knows that healthy churches will advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what his life, his apostleship, is all about. And so he exhorts Titus to put things in order. Installing elders in every church who will teach sound doctrine. And that's in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 1. And he details the standard for godly character and integrity in these men. 
And so I want us just to quickly get, get a, a, get, capture a, a big picture of what Paul is doing in writing this letter to Titus. He insists throughout the letter, on a high level of moral and social conduct by the Christians. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that we'll see in a few weeks, this is Paul saying this is how older men and older women and younger men and younger women are to function within a faith. This is what a reasonably sound faith looks like. A faith that is accompanied by the knowledge of God's Word. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he shares the same thing. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, in chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, Paul commends Titus that Christian behavior must be grounded in the basic truths of the gospel. And so we, we learn something about the character of those who are in Crete, of the Cretans from Paul in verse 12 of chapter 1. He says that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And what was happening in these fledgling churches is that they were adversely being influenced by the prevailing low moral standards that were prevalent in Crete. The gospel of grace was being, was being misinterpreted. And it was being misinterpreted to mean that salvation was unrelated to daily conduct. In other words, there was this divide between their faith and their conduct, the way they were living. There was this divide between faith and godliness. So Paul commends Titus to teach and to instruct the churches. This is really the heartbeat of Paul's message. In fact, the theme for Titus is found in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, which says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is, Christ himself has come, bringing salvation for all men, training us, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So let me just say from from the beginning, from the onset this morning, we're not talking about legalism this morning. We're talking about the outworking of our faith that's matched with the knowledge of who God is, which produces in our lives a sense of godliness. That means we are growing more and more into the image of Christ as the days go by, as eternity, the day of our eternal glorification draws near. We are in transformation. We are in process being changed. And so this is what Paul really sets out to teach or to, to instruct Titus and to encourage Titus in speaking and in sharing. So this morning, as we look at verses 1 through 4, I want us to see that the gracious gift of our salvation in Christ leads us to godliness and the service of God our Savior. See, salvation in Christ is a gracious gift from God. And while the good news of Christ means we don't earn our salvation, it doesn't minimize the call of godly living in every believer's life. Because a growing faith produces increasing godliness in each of our lives and so the opening salutation of paul's letter to titus it's a tremendous opening and it's packed with doctrine and theology and so remembering paul's audience first to titus and secondly to the church 
I want to unpack these four verses and we'll see three truths that ought to be common in every born again believer's life. And the first one is this. We need to understand our calling. We need, church, to understand our calling. In verse 1, we see this. Paul is saying, Paul, a servant, I'm, I'm a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and of their knowledge of the truth. There are four characteristics here in verse 1 that are common to all followers of Christ. And the first one is this, that we too, like Paul, are all servants of God. In verse 1, Paul identifies himself as a servant of God. That word for servant, it's the word for slave in the New Testament. In other words, Paul is calling himself a slave of God. And the word for servant, it's, it's, a, it's a humble title. It's one of self-designation by the Apostle Paul. But it, it's a word that speaks to his view of his own life before God. That he is a slave for God. As one who is in relationship to Christ, who has professed faith in Christ, has come to faith in God, he is a slave of God. Slaves have no rights. They're not living on their own. They belong to the one who purchases them. And as a slave of God, Paul confesses that his life isn't his own. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 6.19. He says... Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So what Paul is saying is that as slaves of Christ, we are those who are to serve Him. Our slaves of God, we we serve God. Our lives are sold out. They're bought with a price. We belong to Him. Brothers and sisters, this ought to be the view of our lives. We're slaves to God. Oh, how this would impact our, our church family and our interaction with one another. What kind of, what kind of um, witness would this give to the world as they're looking in on our body, on our, on our fellowship? What kind of demonstration of our faith would this be to the world for them to see this mindset within the body of Christ that we are slaves unto God, that we are sold out to Him? J.I. Packer asked the question, what work does Christ set His servants to do? Christ's disciples serve Him by becoming the slaves of their fellow servants and being willing to do literally anything, however costly, however irksome, or or undignified, in order to help them. This is what love means. As he himself showed at the Last Supper when he played the slave's part and washed the disciples' feet. You see, when the New Testament speaks of ministering to the saints, it, it doesn't primarily mean the preaching of God's Word. It means devoting time. It means trouble, devoting ourselves to time and are devoting our time to to trouble and and to the substance of giving ourselves to others to help one another in all practical ways as much as possible. You see, the essence of Christian service is loyalty to the king, expressing itself in care for his servants, for one another. Brothers and sisters, let me exhort us, each of us, all the more until the day that Christ returns to have this type of mindset among 
our fellowship that we are servants of God, slaves of God, and therefore servants of one another. But the second characteristic we see is that we are sent by Christ. Paul says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, apostle means a messenger or or sent one. For Paul, his claim of apostleship of Christ is a claim of authority. It carried weight as one specifically sent by Christ himself. He was entrusted with preaching this message of the gospel for the establishment of the church, for the spread of the gospel throughout all of the nations. If you're a parent of more than one child, maybe even of just one child, you probably understand the idea of authoritative messenger well. One day we were in a hurry to leave and make an appointment. And so I I sent one of our children, as we were busy making preparations to leave, I sent one of our children across the street to tell his brothers that it was time to come home from the neighbor's house. So one of them came home after a few minutes went by, though. I asked, well, where's your brother? To which he replied, He's still over there playing. So I I sent the other son back across the street and said, would you go and speak one more time and tell your brother it's time to come home because we need to leave in a few minutes. So when he got home, I asked him why he hadn't returned whenever I had first sent message for him to come and to, to get ready at home. He said, well, I didn't think you were talking to me. I thought you were just talking to him. (laughs) So I kindly called all the child, corralled him into the kitchen, sat down around the table, and began to explain. I began to explain that whenever I send one of them as a messenger carrying my voice, my word, they need to hear it as authoritative coming from me or from their mom, and they need to reply and respond to the message that they receive from their parents. And then secondly, I said, now if I ever hear that you use our name or use our authority to coerce your brother or sister into doing something for your own good, but it's not something that we've commanded or asked, then there will be severe consequences for taking our name in vain. We've not had any severe consequences. Similarly, church, we need to see our own lives as those sent by Christ. Not in the complete sense of Paul's apostleship, but certainly as ambassadors for Christ. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, and even as the Great Commission, Matthew 28 says, all, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Get this. We we have been sent by Christ. We have been given a message, and we have been sent by Christ as messengers, as ambassadors into this world. You know what this means? It means practically that you and I, in our daily interaction with others, we're sharing the gospel. And we need to be sharing the gospel, excuse me, vocally. We need to be sharing the gospel, not just with our actions, but with the very words that we speak. And this is what Paul is saying, that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is a sent one. He is a messenger. And like Paul is a sent one, we too are are sent ones to carry out this message of the gospel. 
this ought to be the second characterization of every believer's life. We see ourselves as being sent by Christ. There is no distinction here in the sense that each of us are responsible to carry this gospel message, to carry the hope of the gospel. And that is, as, as a believer, whatever stage of life we are in, whether we're in, in, in primary school, secondary, whether we're in college, uh, whether we're in, uh, in, in the workforce, w- whether we're in retirement, w- whatever, whatever place in life we find ourselves, this characterization of the believer does not change, that we are sent by Christ. And we need to see ourselves sent by Christ into the very places where he has set us, placed us. The third characteristic is that we are chosen by God. He says there, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul says he's an apostle of Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. In other words, he says his apostleship exists for the faith of God's elect. And this points us to see the means of grace that we've talked about this morning. And that is that salvation from beginning to end is the sovereign work of God. It's his grace that saves us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But listen, from this, the means of grace, we see the importance of evangelism and God's eternal plan of redemption. As God's servants, we're sent by Christ to proclaim the grace of God in salvation to all. But here's the thing. We do this and we leave the results up to God. We are faithful to proclaim God's word, to share the gospel of Christ, and then at the same time, we leave the results of what we share up to God. He is the one who is at work in the lives of the individuals whom we're sharing with. Our focus must be then on calling men, calling women, calling children to repentance and trusting in God. And we must trust God to work effectually in their lives. We must trust Him and pray that He would open the eyes of those who are blind by His Holy Spirit so they may see their sin and confess their need for Christ and respond by faith to to what Christ is calling them to. One writer says, our eternal status, this is Ken Hughes, he says our eternal status is determined by the love of a heavenly heart and not by the work of human hands. You see, the term elect here and and elsewhere in Scripture, it reminds us that God chooses his people to be his own out of mercy, not because they've achieved or we've achieved some great righteousness on our own. Think about Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, a, a verse that we're memorizing in our equipping class on Sunday nights where we're walking through two ways to live that Pastor Drew has been teaching. And it's a it's a it's an equipping class teaching us how to be evangelistic in our in our lives and and share the gospel. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says there is none righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. You see, those who are God's elect, the church, the people of God. Here's what Paul is saying. We are to be growing 
in the knowledge of the truth. The gospel of God's grace toward us in Christ is the truth that he's speaking about. The truth about God is how he redeemed us. He has sent Christ, his son, to redeem us. And the truth about God is that he has exercised great mercy toward us. We see the truth of Christ's resurrection and how God's word grants us hope for eternal life. Too many believers are going through just kind of blindly trusting in a negative sense and not growing in their knowledge of God's word. You see, we need to be ready to give a defense for the hope of the gospel that's within us when we're asked about the hope of this gospel. And so he says there that I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. You see, it's the knowledge of the truth accompanied with faith in God that brings about godliness in our lives, Christian All of this has a purpose, and that purpose is godliness. We are purposed for godliness. This is the fourth characteristic of every believer's life. Faith and knowledge of the truth come together in a glorious display of godliness and Christ-likeness in the life of every believer, or it ought to anyway. So I'm advocating for so much more than just a head knowledge of truth, of biblical truths or biblical facts. I'm advocating this morning for a faith that is matched by our knowledge and it's lived out in our daily life so that we are being conformed into the image of Christ because the grace of God that calls us to salvation also compels us to live godly lives that are effectual. They, they, they cause others to look in and see this godliness that God is producing in in our lives through his word. And so knowledge of the truth about God ought to produce godly fruit in every believer's life. God's grace toward us doesn't then obligate us. It endears us to walk, walk in, in lives of, of godliness. And I think this really strikes at the heart of our modern day view of salvation Salvation in Christ is more than just a a moral tidying up of our lives that it just makes us good people morally. No, it's redemption from sin and death. It's redemption from eternal condemnation under the wrath of God. Many today, perhaps even some in the room this morning, live with a disconnect between our faith and our behavior. And this is a pervasive false doctrine today in the church that's running rampant. Many believe that just because they've prayed this prayer of asking Jesus into their heart that they then have salvation, but, but it, it fundamentally misses the point of the transforming power of the gospel in our lives. One writer said, we're challenged these days, but not changed. We're convicted, but not converted We hear, but do not, and thereby we deceive ourselves. Brothers and sisters, when the message of the gospel comes unglued from godliness in our lives, faith becomes complacent. It becomes apathetic at best. And so I want to ask us this morning, is there an area in our lives where where conviction has been heavy upon us? 
Conviction has been heavy upon you, but you've, you've been slow in dealing with it. You've been negligent in, in dealing with it. And I want to challenge you this morning to remember that you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. God has called you to godly living. It's a it ought to characterize every believer's life that we would pursue godliness in Him, that we would pursue holiness walking with Him. So let me ask, are there, are there things in our lives that are in not, accord, not in accord with godly living? Are there things personally in our lives that we need to confess to God and, and be rid of this morning? Let me cha- challenge you to, to ask God to strengthen you for continued formation and, and continued transformation in your life. And this all according to his holy word. The second truth we see this morning is that believers have an eternal promise in verses two and three. Believers have an eternal promise. He says all this in in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. You see, we're not only servants of God. But we have security in Christ, which sets us free to serve Christ. Paul is pointing us to see that through the preaching of the word, God's eternal redemptive plan is unfolding. And so this gives us it gives us hope. We, too, are participating in God's unfolding plan, his unfolding eternal redemptive plan. And so, in other words, there's there's a sort of chain reaction that's set off that Paul's highlighting for us. And that is, the saving faith of God's elect leads to a knowledge of the truth, which then leads to godliness, which rests on the hope of eternal life in a God who cannot lie. You hear what he says? He never lies. He's promised before the ages began. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? You see, God's eternal promise of redemption has been fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. And here's what Paul is doing. He is proclaiming this gospel message, this hope of eternal life. And so we see that we as believers would be marked by hope. It's not like watching our favorite sports team or our, our favorite race or our favorite dancer or, or whatever competition that we might see who, who's going to win and hope in the end that, that, we've got, uh, that we're, we're on the winning side or that our team's going to win. No, this is, this is a certainty that Paul is speaking about for hope, the hope of eternal life is certain it doesn't change it is is not wavering it's unwavering and it's promised to us by a god who does not lie literally that which has been secured from the foundation of the world before times eternal and so i want us to see in verse three that our hope is based upon his word that is our confidence our faith rests in the assurance of god's eternal promise For he is a God who cannot lie. And this God who cannot lie has given us Christ our Savior. So Paul says, 
and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. You see, this is the gospel that Paul's been set apart and sent into the world to preach. It's the same message God has called you and I to proclaim. The messengers change throughout the history of the world, but the message never does change. The message stays the same. And so it's amazing to think, for me to think, that that God has placed this message of eternal salvation in our hands, feeble and frail as we are. He's given us the responsibility to carry it out, to proclaim it. And so, brothers and sisters, let us be faithful in carrying this message of the hope of eternal life to the world. The third truth I think we see this morning in verse 4 is the believer's common faith comes from unearned grace. I know by definition grace is unearned, but I wanted to highlight that this is unearned grace. And so Paul turns his attention to Titus. He says, my true child in a common faith, the very same faith that Paul possessed was shared by Titus. This is the common faith that they had. And here's the thing. We, too, who believe upon Christ today, share in the same faith of Paul and Titus and all Christians down through the centuries. And so Paul closes his salutation, his opening, with a common phrase. But I don't want us to miss the insight or the significance of the common phrase in what he's saying. He says the last line of verse 4, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Grace is unmerited favor of God. And peace is that we have been reconciled with God. And that only by grace. Only by what grace can bring about. And so this common faith that he speaks of is a faith both given by God and secured by God. Notice in verse 3 what Paul says. He gives the title. He says, by the command of God, our Savior. And then notice in verse 4, he says, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Both God the Father and God the Son are involved in bringing about our salvation. So by grace, God has brought us into peace with Himself. And so what we say is, praise God for salvation. Praise God for the grace that He has given us in calling us into fellowship with Him, in giving us salvation. And so the gracious gift of our salvation in Christ ought to lead us, brothers and sisters, to godliness and ought to lead us in the service of God, our Savior. Let me ask you this morning, Christian, are you are you a slave of God? Do you consider yourself? Is that your mindset that you are a slave of God, a servant of God? Do you see yourself as one who has been sent by Christ Do you understand the significance of God's grace in your life as as God's elect people, as he says there in verse 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect? You understand that we are called to walk in godliness, that there can't be be a division between faith and and practice, faith and behavior, that together they go together and they they cause us to, to walk in godliness in our lives. This is God's desire for us. 
Are you trusting and serving God this morning? Are you believing in the hope of eternal life that He has given us? Are you trusting in that promise in His sovereign hand working in your life? Are you praising Him for the unearned grace, the grace that He has given you in calling you to faith? I want to challenge us this morning to have hearts of joy and hearts of praise as we consider these things before the Lord. And that we would confess before God our great need for Him, to live for Him, to walk in godliness, and to have that mindset that we are slaves of God. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come before You this morning, we pray that You would work within us this holy mindset that we are servants of Yours, that we are sold out to You. We're not our own. We belong to You. And Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have given us in our salvation. And we ask that you would grip us with this reality of being your messengers sent by you. And God, that you would affirm us and assure us on this great eternal promise from before the ages began that our salvation is secure in you. And because of that, we have freedom to live for Christ, our Savior. And so, God, make us bold. Increase our knowledge of your word so that our faith is strengthened and that our lives that our lives are shaped into godliness. And so we ask this, Lord, in the strong and the powerful name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Would you stand?